Okay. Parshat Mishpatim, which you will find on page 513, 513. And uh, let's say the bracha for studying Torah. Blaze, do you want a volume? Do you want one? <laughs> we'll just put it nearby. Baruch Ata Adonai Elohinu Melech Olam Asher Kitshanu Mitzvotav Vitzivanu Laasok Bedivrei Torah. Amen. Okay. So the shadow side of Torah. So I thought let's dig right in to the very beginning of this parsha, which is all about how you're supposed to treat slaves. Um, and uh, I have been, for the last few months, bits and pieces, I've been reading um, the, a book called These Truths by Jill Lepore, which is a new history of the United States. And so I'm, I'm going to be referencing all the things I've learned reading that book or been reminded of when we're talking about how the Torah wants us to treat slaves because it also relates to how the Torah wants us to treat the differences of how women are treated versus male slaves, female slaves. So there are these, these two ancient and giant deficits of being either a slave or a female which disenfranchise you to what degree, to varying degrees. Um, on the other hand, the rules of slaves in the Torah are rules that give them human rights, which was unprecedented. And it's because of, as we've talked about many times, the Jewish understanding that we were slaves, and therefore you have to know the feelings of the stranger and the slave. And so we'll talk about that too. So it's a mixed bag. Uh, mishpatim, a mixed bag that I want to explore. And I have some commentaries, and I'm, I'm excited. I want to look at all this with you. The whole Parsha. So we are standing at Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments were last week. And, uh, but they were just a few minutes ago. And now Moses, now comes a whole, Mishpatim means laws. And this whole collection of covenantal laws of how one is, to, which are mostly mostly deal with um, personal injury, property, moral behavior, how to it, all, laws of what, how to create this society. That's what happens in Mishpati. Um, and. Um, then in the last chapter of Mishpatim, the covenant is ritually uh, sealed with this fascinating chapter that we're not going to really look at today, where Moses and, um, and the elders go up the mountain. Moses and Joshua and the elders, and Aaron, no, Moses, anyway, Aaron and his sons and Moses, they all go up the mountain and they see God, it says, and they eat and drink. And the vision is like one of sapphire, above and below, and it's like, wow. So it's an amazing um, description. 
but I want to focus on, on the laws here. So let's start on 5.13. So these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you acquire a Hebrew slave, that person shall serve six years and shall go free in the seventh year without payment. So I think one of the important things to um, understand about the biblical Hebrew is that the word for slave, and just let's plug this in, the word for slave, which is eved, also means servant uh, and avod. And so <clears throat> there's, it's not clear what this category is because uh, when Moses goes to Pharaoh with God's message, the message is, let my people go that they might serve me, avod, in, in the wilderness. So we're, who, are we slaves of Yudhei Are we indentured servants? Are we servants? Are, do, what's the word mean? So it's very interesting that the con, that contact that that there's no distinction between servant, serf, slave, and even worshiper uh, in Hebrew. It's all the same word of somehow being what subservient to. Uh, somehow it's a status. Um, it's a relationship, but it's not. But the word slave essentially doesn't exist in Hebrew except in context uh, of English, how you would use it. Right? Were we slaves to Pharaoh? Were we serfs to Pharaoh? Were we... But what do you mean then we're supposed to... Pharaoh has to let us go so we can be servants of yod heh Does it mean... Does it mean um, like... What's the word for those who serve a king? Uh, uh, who, a king and his subjects? Subject. Does it mean a subject? Um, but it's a, so I'm just thinking out loud. It's, a, it's clearly a, a relationship of status and power. There is a master or a king or a god. Subject and object, <laughs> in a sense. In a, in a sense, yes, that's right. Okay. What, what I just found interesting is, is the next word, this person. Be, because I mean, even, even in our country, slaves were three-fifths of a person, so... Yes, so. and we're going to get to that. Mm. Um, uh, I, I want to get to that about the three-fifths, because I found a fascinating connection here. That, that's just a function of the translation. Where? <clears throat> what is that word? Sheshanim Ya'avod, for six years, that person shall work. Mm-hmm. When you acquire a Hebrew slave, that person shall serve six years and shall go free in the seventh year without payment. So the slave is a Hebrew? We're talking about a... Well, there are also Gentile slaves who do not go free. We'll get to that after the, after the sabbatical year. Um, uh, and also... This is the origin of indentured servitude in, you know, of the, in Great Britain and then transferred to the United States, uh, which eventually was, well, there was debtor's prison and there was indentured servitude. 
in, uh, in, the, in colonial America and then shortly after, I was reading how in the early 1800s, debtor's prison was abolished and something called bankruptcy was invented so that people didn't have to go to debtor's prison anymore. Um, but here, here or in England? Here. I don't know about England. Uh, that may have been true in England, too. Think of all the Dickens novels with it. Okay, verse 3. So they go free in the seventh year without payment. <clears throat> They're free to go. They've paid their debt. If a male slave came single, he shall leave single. If he had a wife, his wife shall leave with him. If his master gave him a wife, and she has borne him children, the wife and her children shall belong to the master, and he shall leave alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master and my wife and children, I do not wish to go free. His master shall take him before God. He shall be brought to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall then remain his master's slave for life. The Hebrew word is le'olam, forever, for life. Okay, so that's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, I'll just read one more paragraph, and then we'll, start, then, we'll, then we'll start moving around. When a parent sells a daughter as a slave, she shall not go free as male slaves do. If she proves to be displeasing to her master, who designated her for himself, in other words, that's why she was acquired, he must let her be redeemed. That means that she can be bought out, right, if, she doesn't, if he doesn't want him. He shall not have the right to sell her to outsiders. Outsiders means <coughs> amnohri, meaning non, non-Israelites. He can't just sell her on because he doesn't like her. He's not allowed to do that. Um, since he broke faith with her. And if the master designated her for a son of his, he shall deal with her as is the practice with free maidens, goddess and a wife. If the master marries another, he must not hold, withhold from this woman her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. Though they're not sure about the translation of what onata is, but the Jewish tradition understands it as conjugal rights. If he fails her in these ways, three ways, she shall go free without payment. Okay. So, so why does a female ev- uh, what's female for evet? Uh, I don't even know. Avodah? It doesn't even say. No. Interesting. Uh, so if a female evet slave is acquired it's understood from the context of the social structure of ancient Israel that she doesn't have she has no individual an ama that's right the words ama thank you so much uh, she doesn't have she doesn't have the same status as a male does even a male indentured servant right because and this is where my reading American history has been blowing my mind um, 
reading about the origins of the women's suffrage movement in the 1800s, they were demanding status as people. Um, and that was not granted to them in the Constitution. Uh, now, I know this and you know this, but it's like it's worth repeating. Uh, if this was a different group, we'd be having, we might have to have that awful discussion again about how all the world's ills derive from the Bible. You, you, you know, because uh, look at the way women are treated in the Bible. And it's like, not exactly. There's, there was Roman law, there was a medieval church, there was, you know, it's like, there, and there was, patriarchy's been around, and the Torah is a product of patriarchy, not the um, origin of it. In the context of patriarchy, I'm persuaded, strongly persuaded, that the Torah is in fact a document that wants to give human status to slaves and women, right? That's what these laws are all about. And, I'll, I'll, uh, and, and that's, what makes, that's what makes the Torah a progressive document in its time, things no one else was doing. I was reading about this. Compared to Hammurabi's code in Babylonia and some other codes of law that have been discovered by archaeologists from ancient Near East, they're very similar, except for this human, the status of being a human being and therefore possessing certain, I wouldn't know if it's rights, but dignities uh, uh, that, that certain human rights, yeah, there are some human rights involved here about, about this. The, um, I'm thinking about, uh, okay, I'll get to that, I'll get to that in a minute. So, um, so reading in this um, history book, the the women's the early women suffragists who were demanding uh, equal rights, starting in the early nineteenth century, really, and the abolitionist struggle were completely intertwined. And again, forgive me if this is all old hat to you. Um, totally intertwined. These women were abolitionists and they were also advocating for their own rights. Uh, it said we, we're endowed with certain inalienable rights, all men are created equal, and from the beginning of the compromise that gave slave owners states three-fifths of a vote for every slave that they owned, uh, this compromise was considered to be essentially evil by a significant portion of the population. And you can go from the Revolutionary War and the Constitutional Convention through the Civil War and uh, understand that the Civil War was simply the only way that that was ever going to be resolved from 80 years before. Um, and understand that it was an, that was one long conflict, which of course didn't end after the Civil War because of um, Reconstruction was shut down and uh, um, separate but equal was uh, ratified by the Supreme Court uh, to, oh God, there's so many things I'm learning in this history. Um, one of the things in, in the post-Civil War era that was instituted were secret ballots because the way voting was done before that 
was people would stand in front of the ba ballot box and give people free liquor and money <laughs> so that they would vote for their candidate. And that was it. It was it. Nothing ever changes. Nothing ever changes. <laughs> and so there was this great idea to have secret ballots, which caught on quickly, uh, so that people would have the privacy of the ballot box. But to fill out a secret ballot, you had to be literate. And African Americans were prevented, by and large, from literacy. So the southern states, especially, there were like, so the statistics were in 1872, there were 5,000 registered African American voters in South Carolina. By 1880, there were 50. Right? So it turned out that this, uh, in, in the unintended consequence department, which is how everything works, um, uh, that this became, the secret ballot became the tool to completely disenfranchise African-American voters after the um, Civil War and Reconstruction. Okay, so I'm just like bubbling along with all this. Anyway, um, uh, so when the, um, which amendment, 14th Amendment, that gave, yeah. that said, uh, uh, Everyone gets to vote. It was all men. Every man gets to vote. The, the women suffragists who were crucial in getting that amendment uh, by, by, by spreading the word, by writing, by having moral crusade, all the things that they did, um, expected women to be included in that and were sold down the river. So to speak. Uh, oh, I learned where that phrase comes from. Down to Louisiana. Down to where, where, where slaves were sold to further southern states. To, wow. um, but the women were sold down the river in the uh, jockeying between the southern states and the northern states the, and were not included in the 14th Amendment. It would be another um, 65 years before the, the amendment that gave them the right to vote in 1920. Same relationship, but Same what I'm learning is that they were always intertwined, always from the beginning. It was fascinating, fascinating. Hi. All of which is to say that because I'm reading this now, this history now, to notice that that if you're a male slave you have a different status than your female slave, and understanding the nature, the, the way that in, in, a, in patriarchy, the women were considered to be not exactly property, right? What's a better word? Because they have personhood, but they don't have... Um, legal standing. They, they don't have legal standing, they don't have... Uh, that's right, they don't have legal standing. That's why when you read in Genesis, as the, all the female characters are basically running the show, yeah. they also don't have any stat legal status uh, to determine their own fates. Uh, so, um, so in six years, the person in the seventh year, the person can say. I don't. I do not wish to be free. The Hebrew is 
Lo eitze chofshi. I will not go free. I will not. The Jewish tradition has a very uh, negative take on this because we were just slaves in Egypt. And so Rashi says, so there's this really interesting set of midrashim about what this ritual of going to the door or the doorpost and having your ear pierced. That's the ritual, right? Uh, and so Rashi says, Is it just a male that has the ear pierced? Uh, yeah. But yeah. Because he's the, the only one who goes free after six years if he wants to. The woman doesn't have that right. So listen, listen to this. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. Um, it says, uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, Okay, and why was the ear selected to be pierced rather than all the other limbs of the body? Mm-hmm. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, Because this is the ear that heard on Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, thou shalt not steal. And yet he went and did steal. Let that ear be pierced. And if he sells himself into servitude, the ear which heard on Mount Sinai, I am Adonai your God who brought you out of the house of bondage, and for unto me the children of Israel are servants, says God. Yet he went and acquired a master for himself. Then let that ear be pierced. <laughs> he went and acquired a master for himself. <laughs> <laughs> Rabbi Shimon used to interpret this verse like a jewel, a precious ethical principle. How are the door and the doorpost differentiated from all the other objects in the house? Said the Holy One, blessed be he. The door and doorpost, which were witnesses in Egypt when I passed over the lintel and over the two doorposts. And I said, for unto me are the children of Israel servants. They are my servants and not servants to servants. Yet this man who decided to become a permanent servant of someone else and acquired a master for himself, let him be pierced in the presence of the doorposts. Why? Because they put the blood on the doorposts. So, now this isn't necessarily the reason, hi Jeff, this isn't necessarily the reason in the Torah for why it's done on the doorpost. I would think that the door represents the house of the person who this servant is now saying, I'm a permanent member of your household. Right? That's, that would be my, that would be my logical take on it. Or... I'm choosing not to go, I'm not choosing not to leave this house forever, so <clears throat> right. on Or something like that, but the doorpost, that yes. passageway. And yet, the, the, the rabbinic tradition wants to be clear that's, that they don't look very kindly on somebody who decides to make themselves a slave. Right, how about somebody who decides to stay with his wife and children? Uh, right. <laughs> I'm talking about... That's the condition by which a person... Diane, yes, forgive me, but you came in very late. I did. 
And this is what we're talking about. Okay. <laughs> I'm Glad sorry. I Glad I didn't say that. <laughs> well, I'm not being, later. I hope I'm not being mean, but that, uh, to be fair. I deserve it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a very spontaneous and true. But it's right. true to your nature and your beautiful, fiery nature. It's true. So what I want to say is that this is the homily of the rabbis on their ambivalence about somebody saying, not on this case itself. They're using it for preaching material. Right? It's understood that, of course, he would want to stay, given that the wife that this master gave him he loved as his wife, but is the property of the master and the children that they produce, which are in this patriarchal setting, the property of the master, and he doesn't want to leave them. It's totally understandable. They want to make a comment in this case on, um, on we're not supposed to be we're only supposed to be God's servant. That's, that's, that's the point of that midrash. Also, isn't it also about, um, you know, you're contrasting this with the forward motion of the whole story in Exodus is freedom, and this is a person who literally does not Who want literally to be free. says, I do not want to be free. That's literally what the guy says. And so, opportunity for, uh, wow, that's jarring. They just stood at Mount Sinai five minutes ago. Um, so, but even more so than that. Well, he's between the rock and the hard place. He is. Guy. He is. Absolutely. If he goes free, he leaves his family. So it's totally understandable to us, and I'm sure to the rabbinic readers, why someone would choose that. They, but they wanted to take this as a teaching opportunity, um, which is the thrust of the Torah. I am, you're here to serve me not to be a servant of a servant. Um, Carol? Well, it sounded to me um, like if a woman, a woman slave would be kept because it's understood that she's a sexual slave. Property. It sounded from what you read before, and I can't remember exactly how it was worded, but anyway, um, sexual property, whatever, sexual, so that so that she could not be released because she's owned in a wholly different way. Yes, yes. The woman's status is wholly different from the man-servant's status. They may have children together. They... Mm -hmm. But her status is different. She does not go free after six years. Right. On the other hand, she is considered a human being with, uh, who deserves to be treated with uh, basic humanity, so that if he doesn't, if the master doesn't like her, he can't just pass her on to a somebody else. He has to be redeemed. If he does, if she doesn't, if he doesn't redeem her, and she mar he marries another, he has to give her her clothing, her food, and her conjugal rights, or else he's still not fulfilling. So she is not a plaything, just for his pleasure. Right? That's clear. Um, so I guess what I wanted to point out, um, well, yes. This is just about Hebrew slaves, right? This is about Hebrew slaves. Yeah. Non-Jewish slaves also have status. They they have status, but they are not freed after six years. But the same conditions 
as we'll see in, um, for instance, let's look at uh, uh, next page, page 514. Look down at verse 20. When a person who is a slave owner strikes a slave, male or female, with a rod, who dies there and then, that death must be avenged. Meaning, that's a homicide, right? That's not, you didn't kill your ox, you killed a human being. Uh, and that applies to whether it's a Jewish or an Israelite or a non-Israelite slave. But if a victim survives a day or two, that doesn't, that's a bad translation. If he gets up after a day or two, meaning he, he recovers, is what they're talking about. Uh, it is not to be avenged, since the one is the other's property. Okay? So, whereas throughout this Parsha, there are all kinds of descriptions of the damages that someone who injures another person must pay. The restitution, the damages, the penalties. If it's your own slave, and you, you, you harm them, but they recover, you don't owe any damages. If you kill them, however, you, you are liable for taking a life. So you see it's this, like, it's, it's a status, but it's not uh, similar to a, a free person's status. Um, here, look at verse 26. We're in the eye for an eye department here. And um, uh, from the earliest, earliest understanding of eye for an eye, also compared to other ancient Near Eastern cultures, we don't have, we don't see episodes there of people getting their eye gouged out for gouging out someone's eye. So it's understood in the Jewish tradition to be compensatory, the value of an eye for an eye, etc. But in verse 26, when a person who is a slave owner strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, that person shall let the slave go free on account of the eye. If the owner knocks out the tooth of a slave, male or female, that person shall let the slave go free on account of the tooth. Okay? This is interesting to me. Um, think about the context of the Torah, the, the, not just the subtext, the text. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. How did Pharaoh treat his slaves? Right? Therefore, you have to treat these slaves as human beings. They have inherent worth. They are not just your property. But they are your property. So it's this in-between status. Um, then I want to, um, so for instance, this whole next section, 28, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, this is like when I was in seventh grade, uh, we, I remember studying this and saying, why do I care about oxes? You know, it's like, but. Um, and now? Now, when, if this is about hitting someone with your car, <laughs> right? That's what it really is about. Um, or, or, the, or the dogs that got out and savagely bit the woman in Red Hook. Or your pet, or your, or your pet, your, your, the animals under your care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox is not to be punished if it's the first time. Mm, yes. If, however, that ox has been in the habit of goring and its owner, the warned, has failed to guard it and it kills her man or woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner, too, shall be put to death. Um, negligent homicide? Uh, if ransom is imposed, the owner must pay whatever is imposed to redeem the owner's own life. Uh, so too if it gores a minor, a male or a female. Verse 32. But if the ox gores a slave, male or female, its owner shall pay 30 shekels of silver to the master, and the ox shall be stoned. So here's another instance where the slave does not have the status of their death requiring capital punishment of the owner of the ox, but rather a payment to the owner. So it's all, it's all mixed up, right? That's why, uh, Diane, I said at the beginning, this is the shadow side of Torah class. So I want us to just sort of like, yeah, yeah. you know, t dig into this. Um, now, the note down below is fascinating to me on 516. 30 shekels. Do you see it? Verse 32, down below, it says 30 shekels on 516. Probably representing the value of a slave. A free man's value was 50 shekels. And a woman's was 30. If you look in Leviticus chapter 27, which is the description of how you repay vows. Um, and I was thinking, I thought to myself, three-fifths? A slave is 30, and a um, free man is 50, and a woman is 30. And so I just started doing my internet thing. Nowhere did I find anything that said that the three-fifths compromise in the Constitution uh, was connected to this. Wow. It may, but none of the articles I read. I was thinking, this is fascinating. They may have just come up with that number. Well, anyway, I know that, I know that, so you'd think so. But anyway, maybe the problem is that secular historians continue to underestimate how much they were influenced by the text. Uh, so I didn't find any textual evidence in my quick search uh, that would say, because, and the other reason why it's not clear that it was a biblical thing is that at the Constitutional Convention, Arguments were made for three quarters or for yes. one half. Yeah, so it could have been just. So it could have just. It could have just, just been. Who's divinely inspired? A divinely inspired a, a by the devil. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. But these detailed so, laws on slavery show that it was very common to. It was part of the cultural fabric to own slaves. There's really nothing wrong with it. I mean. No. It, no one ever thought that slavery itself yeah. should be abolished. Right. That was not the context of the Bible, or even of the rabbinic period, even though by the time of the rabbis, they are looking very uh, negatively upon slave owners in the Roman period. In the Roman period? But they still, we still have plenty of records, uh, plenty of stories about uh, uh, wealthy rabbis who owned slaves. Um, it was only in the 19th century, though, 18th century, when slavery became very pejorative. And that's right, horrible. that's right. In the 18th century is when the concept of 
all men are created equal, which is obviously a phrase that that phrase wasn't invented in the Declaration of Independence. That uh, that phrase was extant. Uh, the rights of man and Spinoza all that. Spinoza and Hobbes and Locke. And all right, that. right. So that that is that idea is a product of the Enlightenment. Uh, that uh, that slavery must therefore simply be an abomination. Um, that is not the Torah's framework. However, and I still feel this, I feel this very strongly, in the same way that when the uh, founding fathers said all men are created equal, and they really meant all men, mm-hmm. except all white Christian European men, not Catholics, by the way. Um, There were a couple of people in there who understood. Um, Nonetheless, there were some who understood men in its designation as referring to all all human beings, right? And then we have this 250-year struggle to uh, manifest that right for people who are not of Protestant European origin, people who are African-American, and for women. And we're still fighting it. It's amazing. It's like the American narrative is two narratives. Uh, Diane, I was saying that I'm reading this American history right now, and so I was, I'm just sort of filled with it while I'm reading Torah, um, that, uh, that there really were two narratives. There was the narrative of a white Christian nation from the beginning, and a narrative of universal, an idea of universal suffrage, universal right, that were that have been battling it out for 250 years and are still at it. Uh, Carol, there's something so wonderful, even though it took thousands of years, of, of thinking about the people who got out of Egypt, sitting around in the desert talking about this is the way we were treated and this is what we don't want for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and, and how that conversation got to go on for generations. And that's the one that's still going on. I love I loved having it in that context. It's just so delicious. Yes, thank you. So the context in biblical terms is the number seven as we've discussed many times. Um, Because six years they work, and the seventh year they go free. And when we read the Ten Commandments just uh, last week, six days everyone works, and on the seventh day, not only do you rest, but everyone in your household rests. That means everybody who's your either uh, um, uh, dependent or your property rests. Yeah? Was there also a category of indentured servants? We were saying at the beginning that indentured servants is what seems to be being described in Mishpatim. Because it says, when you acquire a Hebrew slave, that person shall serve six years and shall go free in the seventh year without penalty. Ah, um, Non-Hebrew slaves, no. The the way the Torah is organized is that because, again, this is pre-universalism. Right? Uh, and so, as I was saying about all men are created equal, carries the seeds for an understanding of all human beings are created equal. Here in the Torah, 
in Genesis chapter 1, it says, God made the human being in God's image, male and female, God created them. So that's the fundamental principle, that human beings, human beings are made in the divine image. It doesn't say Jews there, right? And so then, through our blindness, our, our cultural uh, limitations, uh, we don't manifest the full understanding of that radical statement. So in the terms of the, the biblical period, it meant that if you acquire a non-Jewish slave, they're a human being, and you have to treat them as such. They rest on the Sabbath. If you knock out their tooth, they go free. If you knock out their eye, they go free, right? These are human beings. They have, there's, it is, it's sort of, it, it infused itself, that understanding, even to the non-Jewish slave. But the context of the covenant of the Bible is for the Jews themselves. And so how you treat another Hebrew is of a different status because the goal in the Torah is that you will be a holy community and a kingdom of priests. And the only way to do that, and the way to do that is how you treat people within your Israelite community, right? So there are definite different levels of status. Um, and uh, uh, the idea of a universal suffrage sort of in the Bible doesn't exist. But the idea that every human is made in divine image does exist and works its way into these laws about slaves, even non-Jewish slaves. In Leviticus, in, in, there's a fascinating, um, well, I'm actually, I'm not sure this scans all the way, but when it talks about how Pharaoh treated the, the, the Hebrew slaves, it uses the word befarach, which means cruelly. And in Leviticus, in Bihar, where it says, where it says when, you, when you get possession of a slave, you must not treat them befarach. Whatever that word means, because the only two times it appears in the Torah are in relation to Pharaoh and then in that portion in Leviticus. So that's fascinating to me. Whatever farach meant, you, don't want to do it. You, you do not do that. You are not allowed to do. So you can't do, you can't be Pharaoh. You can't throw babies in the Nile. You can't, you can't, you can't. And shedding human blood, uh, uh, starting with Cain and Abel, is absolutely forbid. you know, has severe consequences. Um, Okay, so uh, the Haftorah. So the rabbis, who knows when, I, this is such an old tradition, chose a portion from the prophets to be a commentary on, a reflection of, a refutation of, whatever it is. It's, it's like the way I've described it is because the rabbis understood in the game of interpreting the Torah, that you couldn't flat out contradict the Torah. But if you could find something that Jeremiah said, you could bring that in on your behalf, right? So I want us to look at the Haftorah for Mishpatim, which I found to be really interesting. So now look ahead. 539. 539. Did you look at it yet this week? No. 
Oh, you'll but enjoy this. Five thirty-nine. Okay, Jeremiah. Let's hear it for Jeremiah and the prophets. Uh, so here it is. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem when, if you can see at the up at the top, the career of Jeremiah, an inward and agonized man. Okay, <laughs> spent some forty years. He was called to prophecy in the last quarter of the 7th century BCE when Judah lay in grave danger between two contending superpowers, Egypt and Babylonia. He was in Jerusalem when a powerful Babylonian army temporarily besieged the city. Okay, let's read it. The word of the Eternal that came to Jeremiah after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with the people of Jerusalem to proclaim liberty there. Liberty meaning the freeing of slaves. They were to set free their Hebrew slaves, both men and women. No fellow Judean would serve as a slave to another. Okay, what's going on here? Um, look at the note below. According to the Torah, what we just read, which is why they chose this passage, because it's this week's portion, Hebrew men and women who had become indentured because of family or personal debts were to serve no more than six years and then were to be released. In Jeremiah's time, the elite of Jerusalem had not complied with these rules. But in 589 BCE, the Babylonian army laid siege to Jerusalem. In that moment of mortal danger to the nation, the masters, led by King Zedekiah, liberated their serfs in order to induce God's forgiveness. Nice try, guys. <laughs> My history is terrible. What happens do, during the siege? Is Jerusalem this fall? is not the final siege. No, it's not the, not the the, the, it's okay. 589, okay. and as I understand it, the Babylonian siege had to be lifted because they had to send their troops to the Egyptian front. Okay. They came back three years later. And crushed it. And crushed it, that, right? That is done. Okay. But there was this interim period here where it appears Zedekiah said, well, maybe the problem is that we haven't followed this rule. <laughs> And we haven't freed our slaves, uh, our, our indentured servants, and just kept them on, you know, which is how people behave, right? You know, that's how you treat your help. So, um, when nobody's looking, if everyone else is doing it, um, <laughs> my daughter Timna is looking for a job in the city now. And she could have gotten this job as a dog walker yeah. and made, like, good money. Get, like, a hundred grand a year. Like, yeah. <laughs> it it, it oh, should yeah. only happen to my son-in-law. It takes, it, takes a lot, it takes a lot of skill, though. I mean, it does. Yeah. She refused the job because the only people who would apply are college graduates. Why? Because you're super rich and you want a nice white girl from a liberal arts college to walk your dog. Oh. That's why. Wait, she, she refused the job. She said, I can't take this job, Dad. No. It, because, you know, I, her moral, her, her moral uh, whatever just couldn't bear being, because she happens to have a college. That's how Timna operates, you know. She's, 
She's that kind is she, of. Is she good with animals? Could she even walk? <laughs> That's a big deal. I understand. I understand. She never got that far. Right. Actually, it's probably okay. But I was just thinking about how the. I'm thinking about the neighborhood in Jerusalem where King Zedekiah lives, along with all the other uh, rich folks, and they have their indentured servants. And they, uh, oh, oh! It says in the Torah. So Jeremiah's job, as a prophet, was to put it in their face. Yeah. Right. Hey, you guys. Uh, okay, sorry, I had to tell that story about do- dog walkers, college degree required. You know, all of this is making me hear some subtle difference in this message. Even though the, the Talmud has been explained to me many times, it, it, it always con- continues to be about people making such a fuss over the tiniest little thing. You can think of it this way. If you make Boy, it let her finish, Jeff. Thank you. But what I'm, what I'm hearing today, a bunch of different times that keep coming back to me, is that I'm keenly aware right now in my life of what happens when laws are disregarded piece Mm -hmm. by piece by piece by piece. And that's what they're talking about. That's what they're dealing with. And it's extraordinary. Yep. Yeah, yeah, Blake. This Tim not taking this job reminds me of a class that I took, sociology class, where the teacher, who was a person of color, pointed out to us that there were so many jobs that required PhDs for no reason at all except to keep people of color out of those right. jobs in those corporations. Right, read between the lines, yeah. yeah. You don't have to be that smart to figure this out. Um, well, I wasn't that smart. No, no, one I doesn't. Got, I got that smart because he told me. Well, and I got, I'm, I'm starting to get smarter. It took a while. You know, I have a different perspective. Like I came from the tech industry. Yeah. And there, it wouldn't matter what your color is, what your nationality is. We went for the talent. You know. So this yeah. is a might be a little a PhD. You got to have a PhD, or you have to have proven talent somehow. Well, I think this would be an interesting conversation about the meritocracy that the tech industry represents, yeah. and then what happens to the tech industry as it starts to get entrenched. It, it goes down. Uh, other other thing, right, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it, so what we're talking now about is class, class enforcing class distinctions, mm-hmm. but a new disruptive technology yeah, it's different. Yeah. mixes that up. Yeah, sure does. And then now we're learning about, you know, the bro culture of Silicon Valley and the abuse of women in that culture. And the, the, so our <clears throat> cultural biases then come along with it. And when we get established as the big cheese, yeah. do we remember where we came from? Not so much. And that's, uh, I'm just reflecting with you here. It's very comfy, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I know, I like it. I like it. I like it in my gated community now, yes. Um, oh, that, that's what, of course, this is all about. It, yes, I think so. It's about, you remember where you came from. It's what the Torah's about. Remember where you came from. You were, you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Remember where you came from. You want to set up a society that works according to what Moses is bringing down as the divine principles? 
then you have to remember where you came from. Yep. Oh my goodness. So, listen, let's start at the beginning again and read this story. The word of the Eternal that came to Jeremiah after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with the people of Jerusalem to proclaim, liber to proclaim liberty or release for their servants. They were to set free their Hebrew slaves, both men and women. No fellow Judean would be served as a slave to another. Finally. Because that's, you know. So I think one thing you can tell from this is that as early as Jeremiah, there, the idea of being a permanent Oh, oh, let me, let me say this to Diane. Um, I think you can tell that as early as Jeremiah, the idea of, being, of giving yourself over in permanent servitude to someone was considered to be somehow un-Israelite. Un mm -hmm. Right? Uh, we shouldn't be slaves to anyone. The people and their officials who'd made this covenant, agreeing to set free their male and female slaves and never again to enslave them, carried it out and freed them. Verse 11. But afterward they turned around and took the people whom they'd set free and forced them once again into bondage. Right? They had a moment of like con, con, pangs of conscience, maybe godled. Well, that's one way to read it, but I mean this, the result is the same. But if you think about um, the vagrancy and debtor laws, you know, the, the slaves were free down south. Yeah. But then if they were walking along the road, oops, sorry, we have to Imprison you, you know, right. again. That's right. Because you're a vagrant. It's so, a, so that's the same thing. It is, yes, absolutely. Then the word of the Eternal came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Eternal One, the God of Israel. When I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, I made this covenant with them. In the seventh year, you must set free your fellow Hebrews who sell themselves to you. When you have served, they have served you six years, you must let them go free. But your ancestors did not obey me. They paid no heed. This is God's voice. Then you recently turned around and did the right thing in my sight by proclaiming liberty for your neighbors. And you made a covenant in my presence in the house that bears my name. Don't swear falsely in the name of God. Yet then you turned around and profaned my name by taking back the men and women who you had set free as they desired and forcing them again to be your slaves. Therefore, says the Eternal One, this is why Jeremiah was so unpopular. They, they threw him on the dung heap. You know, they put him in jail. Therefore, says the Eternal One, because you did not proclaim permanent liberty for your kinfolk and your neighbors, and thereby refuse to obey me. I tell you that I will now give you a proclamation of liberty, sarcasm here, a liberty of the sword, of plague and of famine. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the world. Those who broke my covenant, who did not fulfill the terms of the covenant that they made in my presence, I will make like the calf that cut in, they cut in two in order to pass between the halves. That was a way of making a covenant. I will give the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the officials and all the people of the land who pass between the halves of the calf to their enemies, to their mortal foes. Their dead bodies shall become food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials to their enemies, those who seek their lives, to the army of the king of Babylon, which has pulled back from you as of now. 
I will give the command, says the Eternal One, and I will return them, the Babylonian army, to this city. They shall fight against it and capture it and burn it down. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation, uninhabited. Thus says the Eternal One, if I did not create the day and night. Oh, by the way, this is, um, Haftarahs are always designed to not end on, on a horrible note. So they will often take the passage they want to say, but then pick something from the, a few bit verse in the next chapter so that it doesn't end on a total downer. So, I know. Yeah, well, that they, last skip sentence. Two, they skip two verses. They, they skip chapters. No, chapters they, they went chapters. back. They went from the, oh, they went from chapter 34 yeah. back to chapter 33. Five. So they took it out of another speech. <laughs> Thus says the Eternal One, if I did not create day and night or fix the laws that govern heaven and earth, then would I reject the descendants of Jacob and my servant David or not choose a descendant of David to rule the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and take them back in love. You always want to have like some hope at the end of these prophetic um, uh, diatribes. diatribes. Um, what? Poor Jeremiah. Jeremiah, yeah. Uh, so, I thought this was amazing. Uh, why would they make these laws unless they weren't, and, and keep repeating them, unless people weren't needed reminders, right? The same old thing. So it appears in the time of the first temple that this law was also ignored. Um, and I think by the rabbis choosing this passage, that's their way of critique, using Jeremiah to critique the as a critique. Uh, it is a law because it most likely will be violated. That's why it is a law. Right. Anything. Right. That's why we need laws. Um, now, I want to point out some other places where we learn about how to treat slaves. You don't have to turn all the way here, but in Deuteronomy, in Kitetse, in chapter 23, it says, you shall not turn over to the master a slave who seeks refuge with you from that master. Strong, huh? Yeah. It's one of the commandments in Kitetse where there are like 72 yeah. commandments. That, that was the part of the justification for the um, people in the north to keep passing the slaves on and to hide them. That's so right. I, they used this verse for not returning escaped slaves. And then there was the, um, was it Dred Scott? That was... Yeah. That's, he lost his case and he, lost he was returned. There were a lot of slaves that were captured and they were... Returned. Right, after the Dred Scott decision... 1850 uh, it was called right. the Slave, slave Act. The, 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 the Fugitive, Fugitive Slave Act. And that meant that southern slave catchers could come into northern states. And in the process, they captured not only fugitive slaves, but many free like 12 years slave. Negroes. Hmm? 12 years a slave. 12 years a slave is based on that. Uh-huh. So um, uh, yes, yeah, so this line in the Torah uh, was used as the, as the, the, the foundation of why, we, why abolitionists would not return fugitive slaves. Because the assumption in the Torah, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's rocket science 
to understand that the assumption of the Torah is that this slave would not be fleeing unless they were being mistreated. Right? Well, they have no... What is a, think of this society. If you don't have a household or a clan that you belong to, you are a, 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 you are a, a wandering bird. No homeless shelters, no social service structure. The whole society, legal protections were based on belonging to having a protector, a redeemer. If you run away from, they're assuming that you're being mistreated. Do you follow what I'm saying? I think this is an incredibly, this also can be used, I mean, Rabbi Arthur Westcott was using this verse recently to talk about asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, it's like, why? Why do people run away from their homes? So it's not an exact analogy, but it's the, the understanding is assuming that they wouldn't be putting their lives, risking their lives, and leaving everything they know and have without a good reason. So you shall not turn over to the master a slave who seeks refuge with you from that master. Once again, the cruelty of Pharaoh is what we have to remember. It's not that slaves aren't part of ancient Israelite society. Both Jewish Hebrew slaves who have additional, additional rights and foreign slaves who are born in your household and essentially are never going free. Um, but nonetheless, the Torah insists that they're human beings within the context of that social structure. They have do I not uh, have, what is, what is um, uh, um, in uh, The Merchant of Venice, what is, oh, does, does not don't, a Jew I, cry don't or, I bleed, don't I bleed, don't I have feelings, don't I have, so this fundamental act of understanding, the, that, uh, understanding the humanity of e- every person. Uh, I thought that line was, that, that verse is very, very, very important. Um, and uh, back in Re'e in Deuteronomy, it says, if a fellow Hebrew man or woman is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and then the seventh year you shall set him free. So here we are again. And here in Deuteronomy, it expands on it. When you set him free, you cannot let him go empty-handed. You must furnish him out of your flock, threshing floor, and vat, with which the Eternal your God has blessed you. Because remember, you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the eternal your God redeemed you. Therefore, I enjoin this commandment upon you today. Then he goes on to say, you don't, if the guy doesn't want to leave, or say he doesn't want to leave, you have to put him... Uh, yeah, you missed that at the beginning. Here it goes. <laughs> but should he say that to you, I do not want to leave you, for he loves you and your household and is happy with you, you shall take an awl and put it through his ear, into the door, and he shall become your slave in perpetuity. Do the same with your female slave. What does the Talmud say about that, that stuff? You know, we were talking about that. Rashi quotes that. I'll tell you again, though. Is it a pierced ear? Do they leave the all in there? Well, in the, in the Exodus version, you do it by in the doorway. Yeah. Here, you do it into the door, according to the Hebrew. <laughs> you take a little all and you pierce his ear. That's what it says here. So it's different in Exodus than it is in Deuteronomy. But regardless... 
Jeff, Jeff the, 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 the rabbinic take on this yeah. is that you do it into the door because that person is forgetting that when God told us to take blood and paint it on the doorpost and passed over us and freed us from Pharaoh, and yet you're saying you want to be a slave in perpetuity. So there's a clear value judgment. The behavior is acceptable, but not not preferred. I wonder if they give you an earring. Huh? I wonder if they give you an earring. After they put an all in your earring? That's what I was wondering if it was like a little all that's slave in there. I don't think this is supposed to be torture. No, but this I is a, if, it, a mark. if it marks you in some yeah. way, so when... I'm, yeah, don't you think it marks you? Yeah, like yeah. a brand. Yeah, yeah, like a brand? Mm-hmm. So maybe your ear is, I don't know, an easy place to see. And then it says, so you put the awl through their ear, and then it says, but when you do set either of, um, uh, of your male or female indentured servants free, do not feel aggrieved. For in the six years you have been given double the service of a hired worker. You know, it's like, hey, it's, it's good. I like that, right? You had them like completely. You didn't have to pay them a wage. You just had to feed them and make sure you treated them semi-decently. Yeah. One more reference to, to uh, slaves back in um, Bihar and Leviticus another treatment of the slaves, which is slightly different. It says, if your kin, your brother, your, uh, under you, continue in straits and must be given over to you, do not subject them to the treatment of a slave. Um, in other words, remaining with you as a hired or bound laborer, they shall serve with you only until the jubilee year. Then they, along with any children, shall be free of your authority, and they shall go back to their family and return to their ancestral holdings, for they are my servants, whom I freed from the land of Egypt. And they may not give themselves over into servitude. You shall not rule over them befarech, ruthlessly. Mm-hmm. You shall fear your God. Uh, such male and female slaves as you may have and keep, those are from the nations round about you that you may acquire male and female slaves, usually as booty from war, right? Um, you may also buy them from among the children of, of resident aliens among you. Uh, and they will be your property, and you can keep them as a possession for your children after you, uh, as property. Uh, but if for Israelite kin, no. So even, so the rabbis need to harmonize this. In one place it says, if your Israelite indentured servant says, I want to be with you forever, you put an all through their ear in the doorway, and then they're property forever. But in Leviticus it says, in the Jubilee year, which is the 50, every 50 year cycle, uh, seven sevens, and then the 50th, uh, no, in, in fact, even then, and the rabbis harmonize the text to say that, at that point, even the servants who have, dedic- who have gave them, given themselves over to you in perpetuity, it's only until the Jubilee year, if they're a fellow Israelite. Um, and male. And male. Well, Thank you. Huh? Oh, this one said female. Interesting. So, which is to say that the laws as expressed in Exodus, Leviticus, 
and Deuteronomy have variations. And you have to look, the rabbi, the traditional rabbinic method is to figure out a way to harmonize them all so it can become a body of, a, cohe- a really coherent body of law. Uh, but sometimes to do that, they have to ignore some internal contradictions. Uh, if you follow what I'm, follow what I'm saying. Um, now, back in our Parsha, let's look at um, page 519 and 518. I just want to read this passage starting with verse 20 on page 518. You shall not wrong nor oppress a stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not ill-treat any widow or orphan. If you do mistreat them, I will heed their outcry as soon as they cry out to me, and my anger will blaze forth, and I will put you to the sword, and your own wives shall become widows, and your children orphans. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, do not act toward them as a creditor. Exact no interest from them. If you take your neighbor's garment and pledge, you must return it before the sun sets. It is the only available clothing. It is what covers the skin. In what else shall your neighbor sleep? Therefore, if that person cries out to me, I will pay heed, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God nor put a curse upon a chieftain among your people. You shall not put off the skimming of the first yield of your vats. You shall give me the male firstborn among your children. You shall do the same with your cattle and your flocks. Seven days it shall remain with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be holy people to me. You must not eat flesh torn by beasts in the field. You shall cast it to the dogs. Then you must not carry false rumors. You shall not join hands with the guilty to act as a malicious witness. You shall neither side with the mighty to do wrong. You shall not give perverse testimony in a dispute so as to pervert it in favor of the mighty. Nor shall you show deference to a poor person in a dispute. When you encounter your enemy's ox or ass wandering, you must take it back to them. When you see the ass of your enemy lying under its burden and would refrain from raising it, you must nevertheless help raise it. You shall not subvert the rights of your needy in their disputes. Keep far from a false charge. Do not bring death on those who are innocent and in the right, for I will not acquit that wrongdoer. Do not take bribes, for bribes blind the clear-sighted and upset the pleas of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a stranger. For you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but in the seventh you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Let the needy among your people eat of it, and what they leave let the wild beasts eat. You shall do the same with your vine vineyards and your olive groves. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor, in order that your ox and your ass may rest and that your home-born slave and the stranger may be refreshed. Be on guard concerning all that I have told you. Make no mention of the names of other gods. They shall not be heard on your lips. It's amazing stuff, isn't it? 
What do you get hearing all that? What's, what's, I'm just curious. I mean, I, I think it's a, a meditation on compassion. And um, because it's sort of like, if you don't, you know, if you don't feel this way or you don't do this, I'm going to do to you the same thing that you're doing to others. And it's really to sort of a, a way of practice, I, I think a way of almost practicing compassion. And even, he, he goes as far as saying, for I am compassionate somewhere in here. I yes. And it's sort of like, remember, compassion is where it comes from because you were a stranger in Egypt, a slave in Egypt and a stranger. It's, it's just this, it's, it's this constant like equating back and forth. Here's who you are. Don't lose track of where you were. How do we compel? Use that to create compassion <laughs> and then treat others the way you would want to be treated. But How do we compel people to right. yeah, us? But, uh, but, wait, was there another hand? For, I yeah. have a whole and then, oh, Okay, Ellen. I was just saying, you, you can't, it's sort of like the Ahavta, you can't compel feelings. You can't compel behavior. You can, you know, these, You've got reasons, and if you've got the heart to understand the reasons, then you'll run to do behave this way. But if all that makes you do it is fear of punishment, it doesn't matter, you're still doing it. True. Don't True. forget to behave this way because bad stuff will happen. Maybe all the motivation that some people understand. I, I, didn't, re I didn't read it so much as like a, a punishment as much as in it, not as much as a way of creating compassion, right? As a way you of may, you may grow happens, into understanding. Yes, exactly. I'll test but, you. I'll, still, test, I'll test you again. But you practice but, again, and you may grow into understanding. Right, but still behave this way, whether you get it or not, whether you want to or not. It's still the right way to behave. Right. Correct. Uh, uh, Diane, and then please. So, uh, what I got from this was uh, the tribalism, you know, this is about our clan, these are the rules for That's our right. clan. That's right. And you don't have to try to bring anybody into the clan, this is just for us, and they're not us. You have to treat them nicely, but, and I just came back from Israel, and just this question. Oh yeah, welcome back. Thank you. Everywhere that I, that I went, with my nieces and my brother and whatever, the black family there. I would because to me everybody looks, you know, I can't tell Arab or Jew. They can. Mm -hmm. And I can say, well, how do you know? Well, if you hear them speaking, obviously that's one thing. Also, just from across the street, they said it's just a way of dressing. It's you know, a way of dressing, haircuts, absolutely. But I, I, I don't see it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so all, I was always asking, you know, well, are there Arabs here? Are there Arabs here? Because I guess I was hoping to find a more integrated society. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we were in this fabulous part of Tel Aviv with beautiful buildings and everything. And I said, now for Arab families, do they live here? Could they live here? And the answers were um, somewhat unsubstantial, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess they could, but they wouldn't want to. Mm -hmm. Which sounded a lot like the 50s in the so. But I mean, I don't pretend to understand it. It's so, so complicated. It's just, so that when I read this about how, yes, be nice to the stranger, but it's about us. Good, That's, I wanted to say something about that, which is that 
when I was reading this uh, yesterday, so I'm a Reconstructionist rabbi. Reconstructionism, not only unapologetically, but affirmatively declares that our task is to participate in the ongoing evolution of Judaism. Um, and that we do that by drawing from the best in Jewish civilization and the best in contemporary uh, civilization that isn't necessarily Jewish, meaning for Americans, the best aspirations and values of American democracy. So that there are two ways to approach this. There are more than two ways, but I will say there's, it's fun, fun, there's functionally two ways to approach this. One is to say, just as we treat the Constitution, you know, uh, there are, there are, there's this battle between the so-called originalists and the, uh, what's it called? Everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, which, which, which is to say, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And that meant, as I was saying before, to many of the founders, that meant white Christian men because it never occurred to them that it would be a larger set than that. And yet, to others from the beginning, it meant something more. And uh, how could we say that our Africans, our, our African, our, our black slaves, not men, and then women, of course, had a longer even struggle to get the vote, and the Equal Rights Amendment never even got passed, and the Voting Rights Act got shot. Down. We're in that battle between uh, uh, this this idea of tribalism and an idea of what can we take from this era which th that we can then apply to our high, highest understanding at present of what it means to be part of a human family. Um, and that's what Reconstructionism is committed to. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Um, you know, it gets even more complicated because Jaffa, which is a great example of a, a part of Tel Aviv where Arabs and Jews live together, the Arabs are getting priced out because of gentrification. So it's the same as, you know, like my daughter just got an apartment in Bed-Stuy. It's like, yeah. like when, we, when, we're, when, we're, when we're white girls from the country moving to Bed-Stuy, you know. College educated. Huh? College educated, yeah. So, God, there's so many forces at work here. This is the secret. Everyone who's young must live in Brooklyn. That's for sure. <laughs> it's just the way it is. That's for sure. It's very exciting. Place. So this is a completely off the subject onto something different, and it sure. talks about the slave crying. If you do mistreat them, I will heed their outcry as soon as they cry out to me. Right. Which is reminiscent of the slaves in Egypt. Crying exactly. Out. And to what did I write down? Um, I'm thinking about. Um, the people who today, like the addicts and the alcoholics and the people who are hitting rock bottom and who are crying out, mm -hmm. and then in some way, God comes to them and sends them to AA or whatever, and they get well. 
and they too are slaves to their own addiction, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a different, a little, I just... Yes, no, you can definitely go in that direction. Well, what does it mean to be beholden to uh, a master uh, who... Yeah, I understand. Yeah. I also have pointed out... Yes, Carol? I just have to... I, I think I heard you say, this is not about this, but I just I can't go on until I say it. I think I heard you say that the Equal Rights Amendment was passed. It was not. No, no it, was not it was not passed. They're working on it. You said it was not passed? I yeah. thought that's what I said. Oh, that's yes. what you said. Okay, yes. okay. thank you. Um, but it was, gosh, on, it was almost on, passed. But no, they, they, they've reopened it. Okay. Virginia and a couple other states are okay. working I'm, on passing it. Can you hear that song? Yeah. Wow. Wow. It it's, uh, again, this reading this American history is just staggering to what me. What's the name of the book as well? These Truths. These Truths. These Truths. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That's why she named it that. This is Jill Lepore. How do you spell the last name? L-E-P-O-R-E. It's a big fat book. I'm glad I'm getting through it. Um, she's a she's a good writer. These history books we bogged down. Reading Frederick Douglass's. Oh, it must be amazing. It's great though. Yeah, it's all about slavery too, you know. Yeah, Frederick Douglass plays a big part in Jill Lepore's narrative. He was a he was a central figure of the 19th century. His main influence was Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. That's where he got his, his real political ideas from. Isn't that great? Uh, Listen you. to that. Yeah. Listen and to that. With this book by Cornell West called Black Prophetic Fire, I think, Yeah. he talks about many different black leaders in a very, um, I mean, his take is always unique, yeah. but Frederick Douglass is one of the he's people big, he's in this book. He's what an extraordinary, extraordinary yeah, man. Cool. What a life. So it's interesting and to he read. was a sailor. I just want you to know. He was a sailor? He was a sailor. A little bit, yeah. He was, you know, he grew up on the eastern shore of uh, Maryland. That's where he was a slave. Mm -hmm. so he was exposed to sailing and boats. So a lot of his similes are related to the, to the sea. It's fun for me. That's so interesting. Well, again, and this is a digression, but I was reading a list of things we commonly say mm -hmm. that all come from sailing. Nautical stuff, yeah. Nautical stuff that I have no idea what they meant, except right. I used them. You know, yeah. batten down the hatches, you know, for example. Just um, it was two sheets to the wind. That means right. guy's drunk. Yeah? Right. So that has a, a, a nautical connotation. Yeah. There's, there's dozens of them. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Um, I'm glad you're reading that Frederick Douglass uh, biography, and I can hear a little about it. Um, there's a wonderful um, interview on Ezra Klein's podcast with Jill LaFleur. Oh, oh, that's a good idea. Do you have to go, Dan? We do. What time is this class supposed to end? Two. When did you get home? One thirty-five. One thirty-five. One thirty-five. When did you get back from Israel? Um, Sunday. So I don't really have that excuse. I was reading the clock wrong. I thought it said I thought it was like two thirty now, but it's not. It's one thirty. Yeah. Yes. Are you going to the eye doctor? Yes. <laughs> and I went. I called him. I said, "Can I stay late?" She must have thought I was out of my mind. I said, "I'm in this meeting. I want to keep staying." Do you want to call her back? No. She said, "Get there by three. It's fine." Okay. So now you now you have to stay to the end. You'll know why. <laughs> now I'm saying, I'm sorry. I didn't want to leave. <laughs> you know your story about Israel. Uh, uh, as since I grew up on Star Trek. That episode which I'll never forget 
is, with, with, uh, is when they come to this, this uh, planet where there's this civil war and they can't figure out why they're fighting each other until the end when they finally see, don't you see? They all have, a, a, they're all painted with black on one side and one on the other. But uh, one have their black on the right side and the other have their black on the left side. And it's this whole parable, great Star Trek episode about how ridiculous it is. I was thinking about it's that. It's so innately human to want a tribe. I mean, it's, yes. like it's a need. It's an absolute need, I think. Absolutely. I think it's our wiring. Yeah. So there we are. So there we are. So I, again, would propose um, that the Torah gives us the, what we need, what Judaism does, which is a sense of tribe and understanding that every human being is created in God's yeah. image. Yeah. Like, why not? Um, well, my favorite quote, because I haven't read that much, from Mordecai Kaplan, um, it's in our prayer book. It's not the searching after God that divides people. It's the claim to have found God and the only right way to worship God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea of universal human rights is a modern concept. It's a modern concept. It didn't exist before the Enlightenment, modernity, and ultimately, really, World War II, um, FDR uh, um, starting to, to, to and, and Eleanor, you know, putting out the Four Freedoms and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is our very, very, very recent idea. Um, but I think, I think the, the seeds of it are very clearly in the Torah. Um, the problem in Israel is that there are people with political power who don't agree with you. Correct. <laughs> yes. Well, it's the way you interpret There are people Torah. here with political right. power who don't agree with you. Right. Right. That's, that's right. That's that is, what it is. It's always that. This is the law. That's a problem. And, but you can interpret this law progressively and expansively, or, or you can simply take it on its own terms, which in an era of global interconnectedness makes no sense to me at all, other than it giving you a sense of reassurance and place in the world. This morning I heard that Mitch McConnell said when told that, that the House wanted to pass the um, making Election Day a holiday. Yeah said something like, why would you want to make things, make good things for working people? Why would you want to give working people another holiday? Right. <laughs> right. That's what he said? That's yes. what he oh, yeah. said. Yeah, yeah, we're at that state. But New York State is coming close to it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Hmm. Well, Israel, in its most recent municipal elections, when I was there, m made it a day off as an experiment to see if turnout would go up, and it did substantially. Uh, so, anyway. It, um, I, rem I remember discussing this Parsha with a cousin of mine who just couldn't, couldn't get it out of his head. That's like, but it still sanctions slavery. It still sanctions slavery. Right. You know, and could not. And that shows a lack of historical consciousness. Exactly. Um, that the idea that slavery was an abomination in and of itself, when does that idea emerge? It's brand new. 
as a collective, I mean, there are hints of it. Like I was reading here in, uh, um, in the essays in the back. Uh, let's see. I hope I can find it. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. While Aristotle took pains to defame, never, nonetheless, it never completely disappeared. Okay, oh yeah, this, this was an interesting. Um, it should further be noted that an escaped slave was not to be returned to its master. Another clear indication that the Torah showed ultimate reservations about the institution of slavery. Nonetheless, it never completely disappeared from ancient Jewry. While Aristotle took pains to defend slavery, the first century CE Jewish philosopher Philo rejected it, and so did some Jewish brotherhoods whose members refused to keep slaves. Meanwhile, the rabbis saw no way to abolish it entirely. They did, however, encourage the redemption of any Jewish slave who had been impressed by capture in war or by kidnapping, wherever located. Right. Uh, contributions to a ransom of prisoners became a prime and all too often necessary adjunct of Jewish life in Talmudic and medieval days. Um, I'll read on. The psalmist exalts God as the one who sets the prisoners free. People who had been servants in Egypt could never quite forget what it meant to be unfree. Hence the repeated biblical reminder, for you were servants in the land of Egypt. And Job's comment on the human stature of those categorized as Eved, slave, best sums up the Bible's viewpoint. Did not God who made me in my mother's belly make them also? Did not one fashion us in the same in the womb? Wow, that's from Job. So once again, the Torah is in dialogue with itself also um, and has a complex and skeptical view of this institution. I think, we've, I think we can draw enough threads together to agree with the essayist in, in, our, in our book here. But it's not until the 19th century that people start to be, uh, get the idea that slavery probably is really not the best way to, to handle planet Earth. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I wonder, about, I wonder about this, um, how ideas ultimately penetrate and then become a uh, uh, tipping point, how, things, how ideas reach a tipping point. Well, slavery became less economically viable. I think you're right. And so easier to give up. Um, easier or, to give up. Or if you're losing money by owning slaves. But you wouldn't have you would. I mean, you can use them. Well, it depends. Or? As the Industrial Revolution came about right. and all this. Yeah. Then, I mean, the uh, in, the, in the history I'm reading, Jill Laporte says that the in, that in the Industrial Revolution, functionally, the slaves were the machines of the South because they could still pick cotton faster, and slaves were value was determined by how fast they could pick cotton. Yeah. Um, so, um, I but mean, as far as when does slavery start to be considered? What? Bad? Um, I think that has to do with when it's there. When the economy changes... Well, but it had already been outlawed in Britain, the slave trade. Slavery on English soil was unsupported in English law, and that position was confirmed in Somerset's case in 1772, but it remained legal in most of the British Empire until the Slavery Abolition Act in 1833. 
Right, but it's right. So at the about the time of the Declaration of Independence, the idea of slavery as a as a moral human institution was coming into question throughout. Right, and the devil's bargain that there were there were writers contemporaneous with the Declaration of the Constitution who said, "We'll never. This is never going to work," and it didn't work. In a certain regard, the Civil War, the country split up, and it's still well. We, the, I mean, the the institutionalized racism that was essentially invented so that to justify enslaving African African people. I mean, a lot of the, it then became so ingrained in the. Oh my God. Um, but anyway, the concept of slavery as being morally outside the pale of what humans should do for each other emerges out of the enlightenment out of the idea of the rights of man out of the yep. um, it's a modern idea it is, it is. It's, it's a modern idea it's a modern, that's why someone reading this and then saying the Torah is shit you know pardon my language but it's not a modern idea it's all it's, it's, as you said the no, seed so of it is the, the seed of it abolition of slavery is a modern idea correct so, but I the, mean, seed, of, then, the seed of seeing them as human beings is right, right, right here. here. Yeah, right. Um, and that's the, you know, you can see a glass half full or glass half empty. You right. know, it's an ancient text. I think it's doing pretty, pretty well. Um, I think that's great because it shows the, the way to have empathy for other people yeah. no matter what their class is. Yeah. Uh, the re- one of the reasons, and I've taught this before, that it says um, that God hears their cry, just as God heard our, our cry when we were slaves in Egypt under the burden of, of Pharaoh's cruelty. Um, and I've talked about this a lot, is that the slave, the stranger, the widow, the orphan are the, are the category of people in ancient Israelite times who have no legal protection. Because if they don't have a goel, a redeemer, um, which literally means somebody who could pay who could bail them out, right? Yeah. Who could buy them back? Who could get them out of jail? Who could, if they don't have a redeemer, they have no status. Sta- legal status. And so, in that context, that's where compassion. It, it's like that brings us right back to the Haftorah. These indentured servants, who the ruling class in Jerusalem decided, oh, what the hell, we're not letting them go, had no legal recourse. There was no court they could go to. There was nothing they could do. They were under that person's both protection and control, and there was nothing they could do. And so the, the same goes for pharaohs, the slaves under pharaohs. They were Pharaoh's subjects. And yet, there, the Torah posits, Judaism posits, that there is a power in the universe that hears the cry of the powerless. And that that's the God we worship. That's what makes it so great to be Jewish for me. Uh, that's the God we worship, the one that hears the cry of the powerless. So you too must. 
And so whenever, I've, I've, done a, I've pretty much done a thorough look at this. Whenever there's a commandment in the Torah, for instance, in Mishpatim, that says, um, uh, where we were just reading, um, if you take your neighbor's garment in pledge, I'm on, verse, I'm on page 518 at the bottom. If you take your neighbor's garment in pledge, you must return it before the sun sets. It is the only available clothing. It is what covers the skin. In what else shall your neighbor sleep? Therefore, if that person cries out to me, I will pay heed, for I am compassionate. And then in the verse before, you shall not ill-treat any widow or orphan. You can. They can't sue you. They don't have a protector. This is a patriarchy. Orphan means fatherless, by the way. It doesn't mean motherless. Oh, yeah? Yeah, in this case, yeah. Okay. Where are you? Uh, verse 21 on page 518. Okay. Because if the orphan has a mother but no father, then it's a widow and an orphan. Because the orphan in the Bible is the status of someone who has no protector. And the protector, by definition, has to be a male. You shall not mistreat, ill-treat any widow or orphan. If you do mistreat them, I will hear their outcry as soon as they cry out to me. Like, That's a nice idea. It is a nice idea. It's the aspirational idea of Judaism that there's a moral force in the universe and it's our job to serve that power. Right? We have no proof that that force exists except through our actions. Isn't that wild? Who came up with this? Who is this guy, Moses? <laughs> it's amazing. There's no... What people mean by faith. Partly, very well. uh, no, I think it's what people mean by um, core values. In well, I mean, we have, when you said we have no way of knowing if this is true or not, but we're, we're going with it. We're, we're going with we're, it. We're cho- we've chosen that. We're going so with we it. Have we faith. have a vision of, huma- of what humanity can rise up to. Where does that come from? Uh, are better angels? Right, that's the faith part. We hope it's coming from a good place. Right. It's good to us. We have an innate conscience. Where does conscience come from? I don't know, but I'll take a religion that's dedicated to pr- promoting conscience and conscientiousness. And Yeah. Well, we have an instruction manual, so even if we don't have the consciousness, we have the... Conscientious. Conscience. Got it. Right, right. I'm talking about conscience. Right. That, that, yes, that inner right. sense that this isn't right. I shouldn't be cruel to this person. Right? Uh, that most human beings have innately. Unfortunately, not all. Right. And for those who have the instruction manual. Right. For those who don't, uh-huh, that's why we have a legal system that does its best. Yeah. Um, so... This idea of the slaves in Egypt cried out, and when any powerless people who have no legal resource, no redeemer, cry out, then we say we worship the God who redeems the slaves from cruel bondage. And that's whose side we're on. 
And you're crying out in your own suffering. You're not necessarily crying out for God to help you. No. You're just crying out. You're just crying out. Who hears the cry of the widow and the orphan? Right? This is, must be a philoque song somewhere in there. Who hears that cry? Um, there's one more thing I want to point out to you before the we quit. Is good. Yeah. <laughs> go, let's go back right back to the beginning on page 513. This could be a whole other two hours, but we're just going to flag it. In the descriptions about what to do with when a daughter becomes a, an Eved, a slave, in verse 10. This is still Hebrew slaves. Yes. If he marries another, he must not withhold from the, the, this one, the one who... First one. The first one, her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. So is married and enslavement the same thing there? No. Uh, if he marries another? He, the patriarch can have more than one wife. Well, yes. But if, if, the, if I sell my daughter to you, is she automatically your wife is what I'm asking. Um, it looks like that's why it happened. Either to become his, one of his wives or it says, and if the master designated her for a son. So yes, he's acquiring as a, as as a, a concubine or a servant. Oh, well, I guess both. I guess, but I don't know. Yeah, what's the difference? Uh, it's not clear. When you go to bed with the master or when you don't, I don't know. I don't actually know because there's also the, the male indentured servant can be given a wife by the master, but that wife still belongs to the master's household, and if the guy wants to stay with his wife and children, yeah. So clearly, it's a whole, a whole structure of women as, as essentially property, right? Um, on the other hand, if you don't love this wife, this woman, you still have to provide her her food, her clothing, and her conjugal right. Um, so in the Talmudic period, this becomes the foundation of the ketubah. The ketubah is the marriage covenant. Um, the ancient ketubah, and still in, or, in modern, modern orthodoxy and ultra-orthodoxy, is a document that the husband gives to the wife and is witnessed and signed that these are what he is committed to giving her. Why did they invent a ketubah? What, what, you know, so the woman has a document. Hmm? To protect her. To protect her. Because she had no legal protection if her redeemer, her master, turns out to be an asshole. Right? So the, the Talmudic, the rabbis were trying to come up with a way to manufacture some legal protection so that she could then hold this up and say, this is what you committed to. Then, then, the, but still in the Jewish world, ultra-Orthodox world today, a woman couldn't sue for divorce. Right? And that was true, not just in the Jewish world, but that was true until the 1962 in this country, uh, often. Um, no fault. When did no fault come? When we were kids. It wasn't that long ago. When we were hey, children. I know. In New Jersey, it was uh, 2000 and so I'm going to say again. I read a book yeah, by I read a book by Gail Collins on the history of feminism. I read a book by Gail Collins a few years ago, and I don't remember the details. 
but it was on the, on the history of feminism from 1960 to 2010. Mm -hmm. It's all that was It's all since 1960. All that was going on in the 60s. It's yeah. all yeah. it's all since the 60s. 60s and 70s. It's not it's not hundreds of years BC. No. This is just so <laughs> the the ketubah the, the ketubah was created by the rabbis from this verse because what the ketubah it shows the protections and the care that the husband is promising the wife uh, in exchange for her dowry and her becoming part of his household. Uh, and since women can't sue for divorce, the ketubah could serve as a document which a beitin, a court, could say, you have to give this woman a divorce. It still wasn't, the woman still couldn't initiate. But had, the ketubah was a very progressive document at the time. And uh, if the husband still refused, they, it was a communal practice to shame the person, the husband, mm -hmm. by both calling them out in synagogue and in the marketplace mm -hmm. and, and letting, shunning them. Not letting them count in a minion. Not counting them in a minion. Uh, all of these were ways that the Jewish tradition tried to expand the personhood of women. When was that roughly? Four or five hundred A.D. The Ketubah, something like that. It still works. I mean, recently I read a case in Upper Manhattan. A guy was accustomed to to going to daven at Yeshiva University, and he'd been refusing to give his wife. A divorce, a Jewish get, a get from their, their marriage, and they put his picture up and a sign that said, "If this man comes in, don't let, don't count, don't daven with him. He doesn't count for a minion. He right. doesn't get any honors, right? Because he hasn't given his work. wife a divorce. I'm not sure what finally happened. Well, often these guys skip town, right? Uh, start other families, right? Yeah, oh, disappear. There, somebody, a woman in the five towns, whose husband went off to Las Vegas, got divorced, remarried somebody else, and she was left with the kids and no possibility of remarrying. Right. And a Jewish Jewish remarriage. With, with a Jewish remarriage, right. Yeah, but and, she and, and, would uh, be the only marriage. Finally, some a couple of rabbis got together and said, well, he's obviously not behaving in a sane and rational way. If she had known before she got married that he was going to turn out to be as crazy as he is, she never would have married him. Therefore, the marriage, <laughs> we're, we're, we're carrying the marriage null and void. So, uh, no fault divorce didn't come into California until 1969. 69. So what I want to say is that in the Reconstructionist vein, this idea of every human being being deserve, deserving of just treatment expands for us beyond patriarchy. Right? That we are in a moment of, of, of the impulse to transcend patriarchy transcend uh, white uh, um, racism, transcend uh, and apply this idea that just as the Bible says there's a single standard of justice for the rich and the poor, mm -hmm. that you cannot show deference to the rich nor to the poor in judgment, that there's a universal standard which we aspire to of just treatment, that, we that I take that as the baseline to say, in that case, no human being in our contemporary structure should be considered a subject of another human being, but all of us rather subject to the same standards of justice.
That for me is the natural extension of what Judaism has at its core applied to our understanding of universal rights. Right? That every human being. And for me, that's the Judaism of the 21st century. That's what I want. That's what I bring with me. That doesn't mean that we all have to be the same. It doesn't mean that it's not good to have your own tribe. It doesn't mean, not, not at all. But it means that the triumphalism and the idea of dominance and the idea, that's, that doesn't have to be co-equal with feeling pride and connection to your own tribe. I, I know that that's very, uh, I'll use the word again, that's very idealistic, it's quite a high aspiration, um, but uh, um, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you don't try and live that way, you'll never get there. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, What's we've been reading right. this for how long and people still behave the way they do, so obviously we should Let's keep reading it. results. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Well, thank you so much for looking through this with me. We'll, we'll stop there for today. If Diane has to get that has to be the last word. Yeah. <laughs>